Did you know that Delaware has endless discoveries? The first state invites you to explore miles of beaches and boardwalks, dozens of unique breweries, award-winning restaurants, some of the country's best state parks, beautiful garden estates, and even tax-free shopping. There's plenty of fun for the entire family and more. Find trip ideas and all the info you need to plan your Delaware discoveries at visitdelaware.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Episode 271 of the Bowery Boys. Counterculture. A History of Automats, Luncheonettes, and Diners. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And for this show, we're going to lunch... Or rather, look at the history of lunch in New York City at some of the great institutions where New Yorkers have gotten lunch traditionally over the years and aiming our story towards one of the most iconic aspects of New York City culture, and that is the New York City Diner. Right. We're not just telling the story of what everybody in New York ate for lunch because that would be too big for today. We'd be talking about, you know, rich people in their famous eateries having their quail for, <laughs> yes. for lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And this isn't a story about street food either because that should be its own show. So no pizza and bagels in this one. No, we want to know where everyday working people ate their lunch. Which brings us, of course, to the story of diners and cafeterias and automats. The traditions of these places, of eating lunch, just an ordinary lunch at these places, at these counters, really helps define the street life of New York City. And the essential ingredients that went into the creation of these places... If you will. <laughs> um, ...are iconic aspects of New York itself, from the Greek coffee cup to this curio that they call the automat. And let's just face it, Greg, we might as well confess that this show, this entire show, is really just an excuse for you and I to talk about our favorite diners <laughs> in New sure. York City. Because as long as I've known Greg in New York since the early 90s, he and I have loved going sure, to yeah. diners and corner coffee shops, whether it be the Joe Jr. by your old place on 23rd Street. Yeah, or even something like Junior's Cheesecake, uh. which is, has a lunch counter. So this show kind of breaks down the history of our favorite places and tries to get to why there's something so specifically New York about them. They are unlike other diners in the country. And unlike many of the other stories that we tell on the show, diners, at least, are still around with us today. We, we all enjoy them. In fact, Greg and I, just before recording the Riverside Park show, um, stopped in at the Pier 72 Diner on 72nd Street and had breakfast for lunch, <laughs> something that is very diner-esque. But later in the show, I'm going to question the very terminology of what a diner is. Because oh. a diner is something very specific. And we, we're going to use a lot of different terms for eating houses. And we'll kind of break down... Eating what, houses? Yes. Oh, e eating houses. Yes. <laughs> right. As opposed to eating a house. Sorry. <laughs> So you're suggesting that maybe the Pier 72 or Joe's or even the Waverly, where we just had lunch, mm -hmm. is not a real diner? Well, we'll get to the bottom of that in this show. So take a seat as we order up a history of diners, automats, and lunch counters in New York. Tom, this is an epic subject, so mm. why don't you situate us here in New York City history? Let's begin with the the idea of eating outside the home. Yeah, this is a big topic, and I really do hope that we didn't bite off more than we can <laughs> chew here. Now, dialing all the way back to the new Amsterdamers who were in hungry search of lunch, and even the earliest citizens of New York... 
they hardly ate out at all because it really wasn't something that you did unless unless you had to. And why is that? Well, because most New Yorkers and city dwellers elsewhere, they lived near or above where they were working. So in many cases, male New Yorkers were off at work and their wives or mothers and domestic servants, and let's face it, many of whom were enslaved in this period, ran the homes. And at lunchtime, everybody came back together. You, you know, you left your job and you ran back upstairs or around the block and you sat down and you ate at home. But even back then, I imagine there were times you couldn't eat lunch at home. Sure, yeah. Like if your work took you too far from your home to return home for a meal, then you would eat out, not in a place called a a restaurant, because that terminology didn't even exist in New York until the 19th century, but you ate in a place called an eating house. And there were lots of different types of eating houses. There were also a lot of different reasons why you might not be returning home, of course. You could be traveling to another city, you know, or you were a sailor in in town for a couple of days. Or maybe you had just moved to New York City to seek your fortune. And in those cases, uh, depending on your means, you were either staying in a hotel... Uh, the most opulent by the mid-19th century being the Astor House, mm-hmm. or uh, you were lodging up in a boarding house of some sort, you know, which really ran the gamut as well. And in all of those places, hotels or boarding houses in the early 19th century, you were on a meal plan. You mm. paid When you paid for your room, you were also paying for your meals. So at lunchtime, Greg, you went back and sat down with the other lodgers and ate together. Well, they were your homes away from home, right. these places. But this specific terminology, eating houses, right. it doesn't p- paint to me to be as elegant an experience as a restaurant would be. What, what did these places entail? Well, early on in the 19th century, the eating houses uh, were pretty basic. There were places like the Eastern Coffee House uh, down on Water Street, which opened in 1813. Uh, there was another place called Clark and Brown's, a chop house that was on Maiden Lane, and several others. They, they were more like English-style chop houses, you know, real meat and potatoes kinds of places, mm-hmm. li- literally <laughs> where you'd get like a slab of meat and a potato and maybe a slice of bread, which would then give an opening because the, the food was so shall we say, rustic. Yeah. Uh, That would give an opening, especially as the city was developing and getting richer, to people like the brothers, Peter and John Delmonico, who would open up a French-style cafe at 23 William Street in 1827. And that would start simple and then develop into, of course, Delmonico's, which would become one of the most lavish restaurants through much of the 19th century. And people, when they discuss eating history in New York, they often use the opening of Delmonico's as the beginning of New York's restaurant heritage. As if there was nothing before. People were just not eating anything. (laughs) But we know that's not to be true. There were places that people went. Yeah, and, and so there were simple places like those chop houses. There were also opportunities just to get something on the street, much like you might, oh, I don't know, theoretically walk into a slice joint, Greg? Yeah, it, it's, the same, it's the same concept, except they were traveling food salesmen. The most popular thing that these guys sold were oysters. You could buy oysters from a guy in a little oyster stand um, on the street or directly out of the boat, literally, mm-hmm. as the boat full of oysters pulled up to port and then, you know, stand there shucking them and tossing the empty shells into the street gutter. And some of these, some of these like oyster salesmen would actually become a little bit entrepreneurial themselves and actually open oyster saloons, right? Right. They were called oyster saloons, and New York was famous for them uh, in the 19th century. For example, there was one at Five Broad Street that was run by a man named Thomas Downing in the 1840s and 1850s. Now, according to William Grimes in his delicious book Appetite City. Downing was a free black man from Virginia. And while that might strike us as unusual, it wasn't actually at the time. In in fact, already in 1810, in a city directory, there were 27 men listed as oyster men. That's an actual term in Mm -hmm. the city. And 16 of them were black. And because, because New York was this 
port city and thriving, it also had great access to oysters. Mm -hmm. And so oysters became, I would say, the staple of the diet in the 19th century. Yeah, um, some people had to have their stomach stapled, in fact, for they were eating oysters for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And I imagine in an oyster saloon, they were they were pairing that up with some like really rancid beer. Well, the beer would improve over the course of the 19th century, <laughs> yeah. especially with the arrival of the Germans. But yeah, there was there were glasses of beer, of ale, of other brown water, you know, to wash it all <laughs> mm-hmm. down. And some of those oyster saloons actually operated inside food markets. Of course. I mean, New York had a thriving, thriving market areas by the early 19th century. And I guess you could just you could go to these markets and put together your own lunch, I suppose. Well, there were even like little restaurants set up inside the markets. There was Fulton Market down by Fulton Fish Market, which opened in 1821. And on the west side, there was Washington Market um, around this time as well. And these would flourish as the city grew larger and and richer after the opening of the Erie Canal in 1825. And then, of course, with the arrival of new transportation options like the Hudson River Railroad, suddenly new fresh ingredients could come into the city and make everything taste better. And I love that this sort of basic form of everyday eating, Mm -hmm. I guess, is happening right at this moment that... Fine dining, i.e. Delmonico's and those who are inspired by Delmonico's, is really taking off in New York. And not just taking off, but moving farther uptown. Delmonico's would keep its presence in lower Manhattan, but they would open new locations farther and farther uptown as the city's affluent population moved northward. So they opened up a new location, uh, first at Chamber Street in 1862, and then up around Union Square at 5th and 14th, and then farther up, then Madison Square Park, and then farther north. And those would, of course, inspire new competitors, chic new restaurants that were located inside, you know, the city's new chic hotels that were also moving farther north. So all of this by the by the 1860s, New York is growing so rapidly and growing northward, but so too is its large and hungry workforce. Right. People who, for the most part, had about 20 minutes at lunchtime to run outside and grab something to eat. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, you know, those fancy places uh, were moving up to be close to where people lived. Don't forget about that. Most of the men, meanwhile, were still working downtown in this sort of business quarter downtown. Right. And so by the 1860s, there were lunch options to to suit all tastes and every budget, because it wasn't just financiers, you know, who needed a place to get lunch. It was also all the clerks who worked for them. It was even, you know, as Newspaper Row developed along Park Row, it was all the people, all the journalists who worked upstairs. And, you know, even by that time, there's a whole fleet of newsies who are out like hoofing it on the street and they need like some quick sustenance here. And so there were places uh, that opened really kind of especially for them. Places like Buttercake Dicks, Ah. which was in the cellar on Spruce Street underneath the Tribune office. Now, this catered to all the the newspaper men, and it was mostly men at this period. And and even the policemen uh, who worked in headquarters nearby. Well, it even later in its life became a hangout for Tammany Hall politicians, because it's right here in the heart of it. It's close to City Hall. What would you eat at Buttercake Dicks? Well, according to George Foster's book, New York by Gaslight, published in 1850, you could get, quote, a heavy biscuit with a lump of butter in its belly, and which is technically called a butter cake. You could get that for three cents with a cup of coffee. That sounds like a nice snack. (laughs) It's like an energy bar of the (laughs) mid-19th century. Um, Buttercake Dicks would later be called Hitchcock's. Mm. A a sort of hole in the wall that served up cheap beef and beans plates for lunch. So you're making a face. But I mean, that probably (laughs) was more filling, you know, than a butter cake. Yeah. I mean, none of these things sound like they were exquisitely tasty items, but that really wasn't the point. No, this was not fine dining. Speaking of which, Sweeney's was located on Dwayne Street, and they specialized in more English-style fares, you know, like meat pies, you know, think... Mrs. Lovett in the back kitchen. Uh, 
Another book, The American Metropolis from Knickerbocker Days to the Present by Frank Moss, uh, described that the original Sweeney's on Ann Street attracted this this completely crooked Tammany Hall scene mm-hmm. and also even street gangs. It was so bad that they had had to close the original location and reopen here in 1850. 1850, the 1850s here, it's notable because the city is rapidly transformed by brand new immigrant groups, namely the Irish and the Germans. Right, and especially the Germans would bring their own culinary traditions with them and set up bars and restaurants and saloons and beer gardens in the quarters in which they lived, in Kleine Deutschland, in today's Lower East Side and East Village. And what's notable about many of those eateries and even drinking establishments was that they were open to families. Entire families would come here And many of these were found on the bottom floors of the tenement houses in which they lived. And these restaurants would serve up German sausages and cheese and pretzels and and bread and, of course, German-style beer. And while many of these German-run bars and beer gardens would attract the new German Mm -hmm. community in the city, there were some then that branched out and attracted all New Yorkers. Uh, including famous eateries such as Luchow's, which opened in 1882 on East 14th Street uh, near Irving Place, and also the Hofbrau House, which opened in 1898. So these became wow. institutions. Luchow's was open until 1983. <laughs> I mean, this is a profound effect of the immigrant experience unto New York because there had been nothing like this place for middle-class, working-class New Yorkers, right? Yes. There were so many people in New York by the 1860s and so few places really to feed these people as they went out on their jobs, building the great landmarks of New York City, Mm -hmm. um, that bars and taverns actually ended up taking up the idea of serving food at their bars. Free food, actually, if they would sit there and purchase beer. A free plate of German food... For the price of a beer. Yeah, I mean, any yeah, any kind of food was served. It was really whatever at the whim of the tavern, of the bar owner. It and was often salty. It was often terrible, actually. <laughs> um, but we get the idea of a lunch counter from this idea of people going to a bar slash counter, getting this free food provided to them. If they would stay there and drink all day. And the thing is, is many of these people were actually like on a break, perhaps, uh, or it was after work or even before work. Mm-hmm. And they would go here. And But the word counter from lunch counter derives from a bar counter. Yeah, it's well, it's one of this. The bar evolves into the lunch counter. And by the way, this is not exactly altruistic on the part of, of bars. They're not just trying to, you know, feed people so that they, they don't get sick the next morning. It was actually required to get your liquor license. You were actually required to serve food in 1877. According to the New York Times... Quote, some of the liquor dealers have endeavored to bring themselves within the law by keeping food lunch counters for the service of their customers. Now, as we've said, the food isn't very good. And it's very limited in, uh, in variety. By the 1860s and 70s, these new higher-end restaurants are offering larger menus. And as more and more people began eating out in the city, they are beginning to demand higher quality service and greater selection, even in these smaller places, even in these bar and tavern establishments. By the way, some of these newly arrived immigrants were living in apartments that did not even have kitchens or adequate kitchens. So they had to eat outside. There was really no choice but to eat street food or in these places. But here we're still just kind of talking about the men who are going off to work. What about the women who are back in the children who are back in the apartments? Well, and during this period, they were mostly in charge of the kitchen, if there were kitchens, or in charge of acquiring the food at the markets. But during the Gilded Age, as there were even more people and there were there was more disposable income, especially for an emerging middle class, this actually brought women out of the home in two big ways. Okay. The first is shopping and the development of New York shopping districts. And with the development of the elevated railroad on 6th Avenue, the street was soon lined with major department stores, huge complexes, these temples of shopping, temples of retail that mostly appealed to women. 
You're talking about Ladies Mile, mm-hmm. um, and and here the the ladies who shop are also the ladies who lunch. They, they <laughs> yes, need to lunch. They need to eat. So where were they eating? Well, that's interesting because many of these restaurants that you have mentioned, mm-hmm. or many of these places, women either did not feel comfortable going to by themselves, or were not even allowed to go into. So right. so you know it was up to these department stores to fill the void. And so most places on Ladies Mile did have restaurants for women, but they would be fast restaurants, lunch restaurants called tea rooms or quick luncheons. And quick luncheons started popping up here in the 1880s during the heyday of Ladies Mile. So it was directly responsible for creating this this little niche eating option. Now, I want to call out right now the one of the most marvelous things on the internet. Oh. That is the New York Public Library's extensive digitized collection of American menus. It's a great resource, and I just went down this rabbit hole, digging through it to figure out like what people were serving at this restaurant. What were these ladies lunching on, on Ladies Mile? Well, let's go to the tea house over at Siegel Cooper, which oh, was the largest yeah. place uh, on Ladies Mile at 6th Avenue between 18th and 19th Street. Their luncheon menu featured the following. Um, a sardine sandwich for 10 cents, some French rolls for 5 cents, a bowl of milk with bread or crackers for 10 cents. God. Uh, and the most expensive item on the menu was chicken and lobster salad for a grand, like, pricey 25 cents, which was actually, in today's money, less than $8. And those prices are in the 1890s. That, yes, that menu was from the 1890s. Which... Which means that Ladies Mile was targeting with our sardine sandwiches and bowls of milk um, <laughs> a middle class clientele. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They were filling a, a definite need here, like a whole day of shopping, like really works up an appetite. And it wasn't just the department stores who were noticing this trend that women needed to eat. You know, as people started to stay out longer, they didn't have the time or willingness to go back to their home, wherever it was. And from the store's perspective, it allowed these women to stay out and shop longer hours. Even smaller retail establishments, like, say, the Five and Dime store, um, noticed this trend and picked it up. So it's not just that they're hungry. It's that that will keep them out (laughs) shopping longer. They don't need to go home and eat. They can just stay right there and keep shopping. Right. You're refueling your customers, essentially. It's a a very, like, smart idea and one that was eventually taken up by a very famous Five and Dime mogul or moguls, the Woolworth brothers, in 1879 with their Woolworth Five and Dime stores. Now, to flash forward a little to 1907... Frank Woolworth, of course, is America's one of his the most famous businessmen in America, and enormously successful, building building his namesake building just a couple years later yeah. and paying cash. <laughs> yes. Well, in 1907, uh, in Philadelphia, came the first Woolworth lunch counter, inspired by these tea rooms of the department stores. This soon spread to other New York locations as well to other Woolworths across the country, including those in the South. Right, and we'll get back to that in a minute. But I want to get back to this the second thing. You said there were two main reasons why women started eating out, yes. one being because they were out shopping and they could mm-hmm. stay out longer. Sure. What was the other? Well, the other one, by the 1880s, with the invention of the typewriter and the need for secretarial work, This brought women into the workforce in very large numbers in the 1880s, you know, on almost all female workforce in many cases, in the secretarial pools of many companies, pouring into these major New York work districts like Wall Street, downtown Brooklyn, and eventually into midtown Manhattan. Now, women couldn't eat alone or didn't want to eat alone at Delmonico's or these fancy restaurants, and they certainly would not have felt safe sidling up to a bar. Right. And they weren't in a department store. So a couple pre-existing sorts of businesses that already existed in these districts needed to fill in the void. And that business was the drugstore or the soda fountain. Oh, right. Because soda fountains at the time uh, were located 
inside the drugstores. <laughs> yeah, I mean, believe it or not, soft drinks were once considered medicinal. Right. Thus, by the late 19th century, many drugstores had fountain machines and bar tops where people could just go in and enjoy, you know, a fountain drink. And for much more on that topic, you did an entire episode of your spinoff show, first, The First, uh-huh. um, about the development of soda and pop in the U.S. <laughs> I mean, Coca-Cola, Dr. Pepper, all current soft drinks really came from this craze. They were once considered healthy of some kind. Well, these places already had countertops, so many began serving light meals with very modest menus. More modest than sardine sandwiches? Oh, much. Bowls much, of milk? <laughs> they might have had bowls of milk, uh, but they would have been like oysters or small omelets, maybe like tiny little like finger foods, that type of thing. Uh, but candy stores also got into the to the game here also. Schraff's, which was a huge candy chain in New York, also began opening its counters for food. These places would be called luncheonettes or fountain luncheonettes. So, hold on a second. So, the et, the E-T-T-E in luncheonette and fountainette, <laughs> yeah. um, is that to feminize this whole phenomenon? No, not not exactly. It's really to, it's, they're small versions of the, like, the tea rooms. These are ah. tiny. So, it's the et, the tiny ets. Got it. It's like Smurfette, <laughs> which I guess is, <laughs> anyway. Oh, no, stop it. Anyway, by the, by the 1910s, Many fountain drugstores had thriving luncheonette counters. According to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle in 1921, quote, What is a soda fountain without its luncheonette? The soda fountain used to be satisfied to serve soft drinks. Then sandwiches were added, then chocolate and coconut cake. So that now, at noontime, girls and women stand in rows three deep, waiting for a good beverage, a sandwich, and a piece of cake. And many of those were women who were leaving their jobs over their lunch break to grab a quick lunch. Although we should note that many, many places of work also operated a cafeteria or their own lunch counter or a commissary where people could stay inside the office building and just get a bite right there. Sure. Yeah. If, um, if they worked for a big enough company, there was usually like a women's room, a separate room that was connected to a cafeteria. But those counters back in the drugstore and the luncheonettes, Mm -hmm. you mentioned that they would order up a sandwich and a good beverage. Often that beverage would be coffee to fuel them through their workday. Is that why many of those counters became associated with coffee? Is that where we get coffee shop? Well, the phrase coffee shop is interesting today, right? Because it can mean... Um, a luncheonette, or it can mean a Starbucks. You know, the term is so splintered. New York has always had a tradition of social interaction at coffee houses, which goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War. Mm-hmm. But in the late 19th century, with booming Italian immigration, many Italians, uh, first in their own enclaves, but then they would become quite popular, would bring coffee drinking habits to New York, opening shops that would only serve coffee or espresso. Which sounds a lot like a cafe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in America, at least, cafes and coffee shops became virtually interchangeable. Uh, They weren't lunch spots, but they would sometimes serve baked goods and drinks. But then coffee shop, the phrase coffee shop, would also become synonymous with some kinds of lunch counters and luncheonettes because people would just come in to grab a cup of coffee. And you would be sometimes when you sat at this, when you sat at a stool at a lunch counter, they just assumed you were coming in for coffee. Okay, so sorry I asked. <laughs> but turning to something more serious, we're we're making it sound great, this whole new world of inviting dining options for all New Yorkers. But if you were a person of color or even a newly arrived immigrant who didn't quite fit into the mainstream, most of these were not options for you. Now, believe it or not, New York City had its own Civil Rights Act in 1895, which entitled all residents quote, full and equal accommodations, advantages, facilities, and privileges in the public sphere, including hotel, restaurants, and eating houses. Really? In 1895? Um, yeah, yeah. It's hard, to, it's hard to believe, right? That all New Yorkers, regardless of race, were legally entitled to be served in any restaurant in any restaurant, chose? right. But of course, that's not how it really played out 
in reality. It provided a legal framework for suing places that discriminated, but there was such a high bar in proving that discrimination. And as a result, most businesses just managed to evade the law. It really depended on the place and the neighborhood that you were at, whether a lunch counter was open to serving you. Because of that uncertainty, if you were just a a person of color who was working in the neighborhood and needed something to eat, there might have been a lot of uncertainty. So a lot of people in this situation sought out a new form of fast food dining that was developing in the late 1880s. This was the Chinese restaurant or the Chop Suey restaurant. Chop Suey restaurants that were not necessarily located in Chinatown. No, they were. They would eventually spread out to other areas of the city. It's and, true. And they were open to all diners? Well, many Chinese New Yorkers were discriminated in the city themselves, experienced mm. the same level of discrimination, and were happy to have any business, um, especially as many of the uptown white New Yorkers would not dare venture into their restaurants. And so it became kind of a, a haven for all New Yorkers. They The dining experience experience there was very diverse, according to many accounts in the late 19th century. The food was quick and cheap, cheap prices. Indeed, as the luncheonette and diner concept thrives into the 20th century, Chinese restaurants would also make a similar ascent as a chief staple of fast local food in New York. So you've taken us into the beginning of the 20th century. We have lunch counters, we have luncheonettes, we have coffee shops, we have department stores with restaurants for women. And all these places have something in common. Yes. A a rather standardized way of walking in, sitting down either at a table or at a counter, and being served. Well, this standard style of dining would be spun on its head with a few new innovations. We'll get to these newfangled modes of eating lunch after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact, with semi-sweet chocolate chips, and a satisfying crunch. It's everything classic 
in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Now, Tom, when you were in elementary school, did you enjoy eating at the cafeteria was that a form of dining that you uh enjoyed well as a matter of fact craig i did enjoy going through the shoemaker (laughs) school cafeteria because well for one thing you got to say hi to the nice ladies who work there and also you got to see your food before you ate it you know when you were choosing uh when you were choosing your meal you got to see what you were you were getting yourself into well that thrill that you felt mm-hmm. you know when you picked up your tray and slid it along uh, the row and watched delicious food being like spooned onto your plate ladled up <laughs> Well, that is a thrill that New Yorkers felt uh, starting in the 1890s with the arrival of the cafeteria-style restaurant. In 1889, two brothers, Samuel and William Childs, opened a restaurant, a quick luncheon, in Lower Manhattan, which addressed a very growing issue of the period, which is the cleanliness of restaurants. Many of the restaurants that we just described in the first section were not exactly like the cleanest place. Well, and of course, by the 1890s, there were all kinds of reformers who were trying to clean up, you know, apartment buildings, but also public places in the city. Well, there was a lot of unhealthy food, milk, and water in New York City. And so restaurants like Child's, their objective was to promote cleanliness by making their restaurants appear as though they were hospitals. They had all white tiles. Their waitresses were in white dresses, almost like nurses. It was like sterile. It was so sanitary. They even made a point of proclaiming that they had their own dairy in New Jersey that they got their own milk from. Talk about farm to table. (laughs) Well, they innovated the cafeteria format starting in 1898 with their first tray line format restaurant at 130 Broadway. And that was in the year 1898. Wait, they innovated, meaning that the cafeteria itself already existed. Right. But no one had brought it to a sort of popular form until Childs came along. Within 20 years, so by the late 1910s, Childs had 44 locations in Manhattan alone and four in Brooklyn, including a very famous one on the Coney Island boardwalk. Now, digging into that New York Public Library menu, the trove of menus. Mm. um, What were they serving? Well, from the 1914 standard dishes ready to serve, so from the cafeteria line here, You had griddle cakes for 10 cents. Oh, right. Yeah, they were very well known for actually making griddle cakes in the front window, right? Uh So passersby, kind of like the guys who are spinning pizza dough right now. (laughs) Yeah. They were were frying up these griddle cakes. It was like a star attraction. Yeah, a starch attraction because they were were kind of like... English muffins, but th- that were freshly mm-hmm. made right in front of you. Now, the most expensive item at the cafeteria was a tenderloin steak at 55 cents. There were many varieties of omelets that could be made up right in front of you. What's really interesting to me, though, is that f- of all the places that we've spoken about, there's actually very few sandwiches at the mm-hmm. cafeteria. And in fact, many of the places that we've spoken about already, the sandwiches are just make a very small portion of the menu. Whereas if you go to a diner today, it'll be largely comprised of sandwiches and burgers, which are non-existent on, on menus at this particular period. Which is to say that when people were sitting down to lunch, they were having a meal, <laughs> a full like plate of food. Yeah, the meat and potatoes type of meal. Now, I have to point out, Craig, that you just used a word a yes, few minutes ago. Yes, slipped up. It, yes. You just introduced the word diner to this show. And I don't mean a patron to one of these restaurants. You were talking <laughs> yes. about a restaurant, a type of restaurant called a diner. Yeah. I, I, I have you been, haven't been using that word. No, I, I, I have tried to avoid it on purpose. Because I think today, most of us call really... Anything with a counter, an affordable meal, and one of those menus that have two million items. Mm -hmm. I think we just all call them diners today. 
you know, Edward Hopper's iconic painting, Nighthawks, which was painted in 1942. If you think about it and describe it, you're like, oh, it's people. It's people in a diner. Right. Tom's Diner. Mm-hmm. The, the, the iconic eatery from Seinfeld and up by Columbia University. That's right, where I had breakfast every day freshman year and put on 15 pounds. <laughs> true. Well, well, we call it Tom's Diner, although the sign outside says Tom's Restaurant. That's true. Even Suzanne Vega called it Tom's <laughs> Diner. Right. But the word diner actually means something very specific in the early 20th century. It evolved from the lunch wagon, which was something that street vendors by this time might pull around to serve specific kinds of meals. Well, in 1917, a New Jersey businessman named Jerry O'Mahony created prefabricated lunch cars, all of a very specific design about the size of a trolley or a streetcar. Now, others at this time had made other prefab restaurants in a similar style, but for the purposes of our New York-based podcast, it is actually O'Mahony's contributions that are the most important. And by prefab, you mean that these were ready to assemble. You could order them, much like you could with homes at the time. You could order a house (laughs) out of a catalog. From Sears Roebuck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what made these, these prefabricated lunch cars Mm -hmm. appealing were, number one, all you had to own was a lot. You didn't have to make a building. You just needed a lot. Number two, they were small enough that you could actually fit them in a very small lot. And number three, it was a great way to get to get a business off the ground. Talk about a turnkey operation. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, literally. The idea of a diner brought all of these different lunch ideas together. It was a quick bite. It encouraged lone dining because there was one long counter with stools alongside of it. It was very small, very snug, and it exploited a lot of these streamlined menus that were developed by the luncheonette because you didn't have a lot of space to store store things. So they had to be uh, many menu items that could be based on a very small number of basic ingredients. So a lot of simple sandwiches, a lot of egg dishes, breakfast was easy. Yeah, I mean... And of course, plenty of coffee. (laughs) Plenty of coffee, which is why it also gets the name Coffee Shop. The diner craze encouraged entrepreneurship into the Great Depression, which is what makes it kind of so important to American history. It became so popular in the United States, these diners, that the word diner then became synonymous with this kind of dining, even though, as we've seen, this kind of counter dining had already existed for many decades. And so when would these these prefabricated diners roll into New York City? Yeah, I mean, starting in the 1920s, diners slid into small lots, mostly on corners in Manhattan, but they would be huge in places like Queens, Long Island, and in New Jersey, where there was a lot more space to kind of like just pull this up, create a parking space, and and start your own business. O'Mahony and these other manufacturers shipped thousands of diners throughout the United States. It became a national a national phenomenon that eventually embodied the American experience, this every man eating experience. It was through this diner experience that you would get a lot of the stereotypes of the sharp tongue waitress, the no-nonsense fry guy, and of course, the ever-expanding menu, which in New York would be given like a serious twist, in the ma- and the menus would get larger and more elaborate. But meanwhile, in the 1920s in New York, there was another totally high-tech spin on this entire fast dining phenomenon, well underway. Greg... I want to take us into the coin-operated automat. Automat, automat, automat. (laughs) Not a monorail, but an automat. (laughs) These automats were very modern-seeming, even even futuristic, self-service restaurants. Now, just imagine following the lunch crowd through the revolving door and walking up to a shiny wall of glass and chrome windows that were displaying, (laughs) you know, mouth-watering dishes before you, from chicken pot pie and Salisbury steak Mm. to rice pudding to maybe chicken salad. You'd slide your tray up, you'd select the plate that looked good to you, and then you would place, you know, one or two 
coins, usually nickels, into a slot, turn the crank, and then lift the window and pull the plate of food out. Now, depending on the year and the location, you might then next take your tray over to a cafeteria-style steam table in the back. So this is kind of incorporating other things that we've already talked about here. And there, a worker, you know, might plate up some mashed potatoes and gravy or some mac and cheese, some steaks smothered Mm. in gravy for you. And then you'd head off to the beverage station on the side where you would insert a nickel and a fresh cup of delicious coffee would stream out of a dispenser that was shaped like a dolphin. And it was always fresh, never more than 20 minutes old. Then you'd turn around with your tray and look into this vast art deco space and try to spot a free table. Over there, I see a spot that's uh, in between two other solo diners at a white porcelain top table. This, Greg, was automat dining (laughs) at the Horn and Hard Arts automat. There was no waiting. There was no tipping. There was no smoking. There was no fuss. Very high tech. Very high tech. Very now. (laughs) And this novel style of eating started in New York? Uh, No, not at all. It actually started in Berlin, uh, and then it came to Philadelphia, and then finally New York. It seems very Berlin. (laughs) (laughs) But the New York version came from Philadelphia. Two men, uh, Joseph Horn and Frank Hardhart, who opened a a successful lunch counter. So they got into the, the, the lunch business by opening up a lunch counter in Philadelphia in the 1880s. Well, in 1900, Hardhart traveled through Europe. He was looking for, you know, restaurant inspiration, and he found it in Berlin, where he he witnessed this very first, quote, waiterless restaurant, uh, which had been opened by a man named Max Seeloff in 1895. He was so enchanted by this automat in Berlin that he ended up buying $30,000 worth of equipment from Seeloff, and opening up the very first automat, not in New York, but in Philadelphia in 1902. And that shop was quite a novelty and a big hit. And so he brought it to New York, um, where there had already a few years prior been a sort of attempt at an automat, but they didn't have Seeloff's technology. It was a little clunkier. Oh, the, and, the, right, the coin-operated part was kind of probably the hang-up here. Yeah, it still used people like in the basement who were waiting for a bell to ring on a slot and dumb waiters and all of this. It was very confusing. But Horn and Hard Arts operation was much slicker. It was really streamlined. And they opened their first New York Automat in 1912 at 1557 Broadway. That's on the west side of Broadway between 46th and 47th. You can imagine that that spot in 1912 was incredibly (laughs) exciting. Like at the very, the boom time of Times Square as a major entertainment mecca. The subway had opened just eight years before. Um, Theaters were popping up all over the place. And in the middle of it all was this new, innovative, you might even say gimmicky, (laughs) waiterless restaurant called an automat, which included a facade that spelled out the words automat in stained glass, uh, done by the noted stained glass artist Nicola DeCenso. Well, the word itself seems so futuristic, automatic, right? That's right. And it seemed, you know, like the next iteration in futuristic dining, because here it seemed to take a, a lot of the human equation out of the food preparation. You n- you never saw people preparing it. You d- You didn't really... You didn't order with anybody unless you were back at the steam table. So it seemed almost like magic. The food would just appear. Yeah, it was materialized before your eyes. It was a huge hit. And Horn and Hard Art automats spread all over New York. By 1912, there were 22 in New York City. And and that number would continue to grow. They would add to it with more cafeteria-style offerings. They would also sell prepared food in their retail stores that you could take home for lunch or dinner. This sounds like this sounds like it's not only delicious but also kind of fun, but yeah. almost but like a like a video game arcade. It sounds <laughs> like you need a pocket full of nickels if you're really hungry. Well, much like an arcade, you know, when you walked in, there was a cashier stand. 
that you would first encounter. Several women would be working behind it with little, you know, those little rubber tips on their fingers mm-hmm. so that they could fling nickels at you and, and make change. And the more expensive items would take several nickels. You know, those vending machines that take more than one coin? Sure, uh-huh. And it wasn't just the glass and chrome machines that, you know, looked futuristic. It was the entire interior. Most of the automats had a really modern sort of deco look in the 20s and 30s. You know, lots of chrome and and metal and glass. I imagine these places were quite popular with New Yorkers on the go. By the 1950s, there were 50 Horn and Hardart automats in New York City alone, serving a whopping 350,000 customers a day. Think about that. (laughs) Well, that is a lot of nickels. It's true. (laughs) It's a lot of nickel flinging. Uh Uh-huh. And they were located all over the city, of course, but especially around Midtown and Lower Manhattan, around the big office buildings, because Mm -hmm. in tandem with this, office buildings are getting larger, can accommodate more people. So these places were the perfect solution for a single office worker on a lunch break. Although, really, they brought together all strata of society, from the very rich in search of comfort food to those really who only had a couple nickels to their name. Um, A 2001 piece on automats in the Smithsonian Magazine points out, quote, patrons were discouraged from tipping, nor did any cash register reveal the cost of a meal for all to see. The coin slots kept thrifty customers' dining expenditures discreetly hidden. Diners could sit wherever they chose, Automats could be great equalizers because paupers and investment bankers might sit together at the same table. And automats were something special to children. With a handful of change, they could choose a meal from the foods that they liked. That's incredible, just the idea of them feeding 350,000 New Yorkers every day. Yeah, and many of them, you know, single New Yorkers too. They made eating out alone much easier. There wasn't even any stigma, you know, talking to a barman or somebody in a diner. I mm-hmm. mean, you were literally on your own. Interaction was really limited here. <laughs> yes. It was like you, a nickel, and a slot. It was solitary. And there was a lot of single tables, too, to accommodate s- single diners. Um, I spent hours in the archives at the New York Public Library. Yes, you did. Looking through and texting you photos of <laughs> automats. They have boxes and boxes of photographs of Horn and Hard Art locations. They have folders for each location in each era because so many of these opened in the 1920s and would be around through the 1960s, even into the 70s, that every time they renovated, they got a new folder in the archives and you could (laughs) see the new look. But it's really amazing to look through these, to look at the clientele. You know, although all New Yorkers enjoyed going to uh, the Horn and Hard Art, many of the automats around Times Square and down in the village were also famous for being hangouts for the gay community. Um, huh. And they were also popular with actors and those in the theater community who could like just grab something really quickly before going on stage or grabbing something after leaving the stage. That's right. Or out of work actors who could actually just grab a cup of coffee and sit there for hours at a time hoping maybe, you know, they'd know somebody else who was coming in to hang out. They were they could be real hangout joints. And nobody was really going to push them away from their table as long as they were a customer. They weren't as policed as obviously a sit-down restaurant would be, or even this cafeteria-style restaurant. And, you know, during the Depression, of course, they became very popular for their cheap food, but also cheap to the extreme, where people would make sort of quasi-tomato soup, you know, by watering down the ketchup. They'd make free lemonade by just using the lemons that were left out for the iced teas and adding sugar and free water. So New Yorkers became sort of inventive as well in the automat. But those photos were fascinating, not just to see the changes in the automat, but to see the changes in New York around, you know, the automat. For example, there was the the Horn and Hard Art at 47 East 59th. Uh, it was the northeast corner of Madison and 59th. It goes from being a fabulous, like, roaring 20s automat 
Um, there's a photo from 1927. Did the various updates in the 40s and the 50s. By the 1960s, they had an outgoing food counter, you know, mm-hmm. as people started ordering more and more takeout. And then they did a really unfortunate redecoration in 1968 where they kind of brick over everything with fake bricks, you know. Mm. They tile over the upper windows, making the whole place look vaguely suburban. A lot of wood and brick paneling going on. And now you could actually smoke in the 1960s inside, which is interesting. Mm. There was an automatic 200 East 42nd Street. That's the southeast corner of 42nd and 3rd Avenue. It's interesting because the Horn and Hardart Horn and Hardart opened in 1940. Um, it was a huge place, but then it closed in 1957 when the building was demolished and a brand new modern office building uh, that is still there today mm-hmm. opened in 1958. And in the ground floor of that new office building that's still there today was another automat. So there's a story of New York. There's a yeah. history of New York to be told through its automats as well. <laughs> now, shouldn't we find it problematic that they were actually minimizing kitchen help, that they were actually reducing those in restaurant work? And promoting the idea of a waiterless restaurant? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah because in fact, they were employing thousands and thousands of workers people to fill those windows, to dish up those pieces of pie, to ladle up the gravy and the mashed potatoes, those workers at the automat, and then also in their enormous commissary, a place that would provide and bake all of the food uh, that was then shipped off to all of these different locations. Horn and Hardart were also notorious for blocking their workers from joining any kind of a trade union. And that led in the 1930s to all kinds of labor unrest, uh, picketing, Lots of bad press uh, during a strike outside that 1557 Broadway Mm -hmm. location, that first location. But part of, I think, the bad press was the popular conception that there were not really that many people working in these automats. They seemed to exemplify the attitude that out of sight was out of mind. But the automat is not around anymore. Which is incredible too because they were so ubiquitous in manhattan you know 50 locations in new york city they were on the ground level of so many buildings that are still there today kind of like child's cafeterias Mm -hmm. you know they were just all over the city and they're gone yeah tastes were changing of course in the 1960s and certainly by the 1970s And by the 70s, most of the Horn and Hardhart locations would be closed. Yeah, I mean, automats were their own worst enemy in a way because that autonomy of eating Mm -hmm. that was such a benefit that helped it thrive would evolve, generally speaking, in the mid-20th century with the advent of the automobile and the development of the interstate highway system. And so people were traveling individually in their cars and required affordable quality food that was also uniform from city to city and even more transportable than food from places like the Automat. Transportable, highways. This is starting to smell like fast food, Greg. <laughs> yeah, You know how McDonald's french fries in your car for a while? That's what the story is smelling like right now. Ew. Most fast food franchises today were tailored to a suburban automobile culture. I mean, just think of the drive-through or drive-in style of dining, you know, like the Sonic type of restaurant. So because of that, it actually took a little while for the fast food restaurant that we know today to actually make it into New York. McDonald's, for instance, had over 1,000 restaurants in the United States before finally coming to New York in the early 1970s. McDonald's didn't come to New York until the 1970s? (laughs) Yes. 1971, in fact. The first one was in Forest Hill, Queens. And then in Manhattan the following year, a couple locations, one in the Upper West Side and one in Harlem. And by the mid-1970s, many of those Horn and Hard Arts were closing and actually being reopened as Burger Kings. What? That's true. (laughs) It was a whopper of a change. Well, not all fast food, casual food chains during this era fit that same suburbanized model. For instance, 
Howard Johnson's, which was an American chain of hotels and motels, mm-hmm. spun out its restaurants that, he, that it had in those hotels into their own thing. And they were very much in this now modern American diner mode, serving 24-hour comfort food. And they were ubiquitous in New York, especially in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. The most famous one, <laughs> and one that you and I like, spent many of our early New York years in, was the 46th Street Howard Johnson's that was there until 2005. Ugh, I could go for a crummy meal at that place right <laughs> I know, now, I Greg. know, I know. And 46th Street, too. I mean, that is right next to that first automat. Yeah, that's true. Then the first automat that had opened at 1557 mm-hmm. Broadway was one of those that had converted in the 1970s to a Burger King. Oh. In fact, the building is still there today, if you want to pass by, is a New York souvenir shop called Grand Slam. It's almost hard to make out. It's like, you know, a, it's located under a bunch of Broadway billboards. But the the structure is still there. The space is still there. And some of the details are still inside mm-hmm. that gift store. Oh, cool. Now, along with fast food, there were other things that were negatively affecting the diner experience. The perception was changing. For instance, lunch counters fell way out of vogue at Woolworth in particular due to the segregationist policies of the Woolworth lunch counters in the South and famous sit-ins by protesters at Woolworth locations in 1960. There were even sit-ins at New York Woolworth lunch counters in solidarity with the protesters in the South in, Mm -hmm. in support of what they were doing. Now, trends in retail starting in the 1970, namely the invention of the shopping mall, essentially took the food component out of retail space. Right, because now if you were shopping all day at the shopping mall and you got tired, you could just head to, like, the Auntie Anne's pretzel stand in the food court. (laughs) But I don't want to get too negative here because the New York diner experience still survives. It's part of the iconic New York experience, the all-night diner, the flickering neon sign. Many of the coffee shops and luncheonettes of old, which we now call diners, some of them still thrive today. Although, what's not so much around anymore, very sadly, are those standalone diners, those diner cars, those prefabricated cars that were manufactured. You know, in Manhattan, they're an endangered species for the same reason they were so popular in the 1920s and 30s, because they were you could just set them up in a lot, and they were easily portable. But you so you could just roll them away. <laughs> yes, you could just roll them away, but you also can't build on top of a diner. Like right. these kinds of diners, they take up valuable real estate. So as a result, these the prefab diner is virtually extinct in Manhattan. You can still find a few here or there, of course, but they thrive to this day out in Long Island and in New Jersey. Back to the diners that still exist in Mm -hmm. New York City. Do you have a list? Well, I mean, there's so few, sadly enough. I mean, there's the Empire Diner that is in Chelsea Mm -hmm. that was opened in the 1940s. The Pearl Diner in 1960s. The Crosstown Diner up in the Bronx. The Jackson Hole Diner, which is famous for those heading out to the airport. Uh, You'll see the Jackson Hole Diner. A few others. There's Kellogg's Diner out in Williamsburg. But there's just a handful. I personally think, however, that the diner luncheonette experience, the tradition, I think it lives on thanks to a very New York feature about it today. And as we end the show, I want to celebrate the contribution of the Greek connection here. For many diners to this day are operated by Greek immigrants or second or third generation Greek Americans. That's true. There's always like a Greek corner on the menu on like page, uh-huh. you know, 12 or 13 <laughs> that offers spinach pie or spanakopita, you know, delicious Greek dishes. So how did that happen? Well, in 1996, the New York Times observed, even at that time, that two-thirds of the restaurants that are considered diners were owned by Greek Americans. There's a few a few reasons, really. Uh, one, it stems from the traditions that were brought with them from Greece, the idea of the Greek cafe, the caffeinian. You know, many European cultures, of course, have a cafe culture, but early Greek immigrants to New York, specifically starting in the 30s and 40s, specifically pursued this line of business when they first arrived in America. 
Now, the Greek center of New York City is Astoria, Queens, and they have a huge number of diners there. And as you mentioned, diners... Real diners? Well, like coffee shops, luncheonettes type of thing. Although there, there are a couple diners there. The Neptune Diner, for instance, one of my favorites. This connection to Greek Americans has given New York one of its most timeless, most recognizable New York artifacts. In 1963, a paper cup manufacturer produced a disposable cup that might appeal to this growing number of Greek diner owners. The cup was designed by Leslie Buck and featured an ancient Greek vase, light blue coloring with the words, we are happy to serve you in a playful classical font on it. This is today known as the Anthora cup. And you pretty much see them in any like law and order episode you're gonna see like eight or nine of them (laughs) but they're also still in use and not just in diners but i mean you know sometimes if you get coffee out of a cart you know the Uh guy will hand you your coffee in one of these very cups (laughs) in buck's own obit he died in 2010 quote It was for decades the most enduring piece of ephemera in New York City and is still among the most recognizable. Trim, blue and white, it fits neatly in the hand, sized so its contents can be downed in a New York minute. So I want to leave us on the idea that the the diner, that this like 200 years or more of dining that we've talked about on this show has boiled down to create this incredible incredible New York experience that is unlike dining experiences, I think, in any other place in the world. And for much more on this, to see amazing images of lunch counters, luncheonettes, and automats, head to our website. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com, where we'll be putting up a companion post to this show. Now, in our last show, we announced our live Halloween show at Joe's Pub. We just wanted to warn you that tickets are actually, believe it or not, about to sell out. So if you were thinking about going, I know it's like several weeks in the future, get your tickets now. It's going to be a great show. We are so excited. We're having a blast putting it together. Uh, So we hope that you can join us. That's October 31st, 2018. You can go to publictheater.org to buy your tickets now. We want to thank everyone who supports us on Patreon.com, who for just a small monthly donation every month really assists us in producing this show. We got to spend a lot of time here in the archives um, because of your support. And so we really appreciate that. For more information, just go to Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. So thank you for joining us for lunch. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.